Hey, Cross Life East, I hope you're doing well. I'm sorry that I'm not with you today. I uh, still haven't got my results back, and so I'm waiting for those to come in at any moment. Uh, but I do want to go ahead and finish up First Peter. It's been a journey that we've been on for almost 10, 11 weeks now. And so we want to wrap that up. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to First Peter chapter 5. Now, as I was preparing this message a few weeks back, uh, I began to take a break. I was studying, 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 so I felt like I just need to take a break. And so I uh, got on, logged on to Facebook and was just checking out Facebook things. And uh, you know how Facebook always provides those memories for you? It just seemed like uh, over and over and over and over again, all the memories that my Facebook was providing was of the three boys, and it was always when they were little. And as I thought about them when they were little, you know, you think about how their personalities are very different. And if you've got kids, you know that's true. If you have more than one, you know that all your kids have such different personalities. And it also means that you have to discipline differently. Where our oldest son is a lot like I am, He's, he thinks a lot about things and maybe a little bit stubborn about some things, but uh, I remember when he was little, uh, Sonia helped me learn real quickly as he got to like four and five years of age that uh, time out and that um, going to his room and those kinds of things really weren't um, an option for him. They, they really didn't work on him. But what worked for James was, because he was such a deep thinker, was actually setting him down and having a conversation with him. And setting him down and saying, hey James, here's what you did wrong, here's why it's wrong, and here's what we need to do differently, and here's the punishment for doing what you should not have done. Now, when I would sit down and talk to James about that, I would walk him through all those things. What he had done, what he shouldn't do, how he's not gonna do it anymore, and the punishment. And then I would ask him at the end of that, say, now son, do you understand me? And he would always say, yes, dad. Now. At that point, most of you would stop the conversation. You would say, okay, I've talked to my, my kid, they get it, and let's move on from here. But I'm wired a little bit differently. I really want to make sure that he and I are on the same page. So I would take a moment after he said, yes, Dad, and I would recap everything I just said to make sure he really got it. Now, some of you are type A, and you don't understand that, but you type A people, you get me, right? You get, and you do the same thing. Well, I feel like that was overkill for me to do that, but it was important for me to do that. It was kind of one of those moments where you're like, okay, I've said all this stuff for you, but I really want you to understand thoroughly the implications of what you've done and what we're going to do moving forward. And I feel like that's really the attitude and the heartbeat of what Peter does here in 1 Peter. He's told him a lot of things. He's told him about what it means to live as exiles, how to navigate the suffering they're going to go through as exiles. He's even talked to the pastoral leadership about what the church should expect of their leaders. And then here in this final passage in chapter 5, it's almost like he wraps it all up and gives this final challenge to these early Christians. In fact, it reminds me, as I read chapter 5, it reminds me of a preacher one time that I sat under, and he preached like a 35-minute message. And at the very end of his message, he said this, and he said it all the time. But here's what he said. He said, listen, he got through his entire message, he would say this. Now, if you didn't hear anything that I said, hear this. It was almost like, okay, if you slept the last 34 and a half minutes, fine. But here's the thing that you've got to walk away with. And I feel like chapter 5 is exactly that. At the very end, it's almost like Peter's saying, listen, you may have not gotten everything I've said about living in holiness and living in hope and living in submission and, and how to navigate this by being prepared and by being focused. But if you don't miss this. If you're going to be the exiles God has called you to be, you've got to do these certain things. And so he lists four things in 1 Peter that I want us to pull out. And so if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5, 
I'm going to begin reading halfway through 5 through the end of the book. It says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the prophet, the, I'm sorry, at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, sinking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then he finishes with this little charge. By Silvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting uh, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Don't do that. We're still in quarantine and still separation, so don't do that. Kiss each other out of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, as you look at this passage, there's really four things that Peter says you need to be about. If you're going to be the kind of exiles that God wants you to be in this world, here's some things you need to do. The first thing he says is you need to be humble. If we're going to be the exiles that God has called us to be in this world, a temporary world, as a temporary missionary in this world, we need to be humble. Now that word humble just means to place yourself under or to make low. It's the idea of making sure that you live your life in such a way that you never act as though you're superior to anyone else. In fact, it almost carries the notion that we should act like we're inferior to everyone. Now, why is that important? Why is being humble important? Because that, that, that humility keeps us from being prideful, it keeps us from being arrogant, and it keeps us from being selfish. He says, I want you to be humble. I want you to place yourself under others. I want you to make yourself low or less than so you don't live your life thinking you're superior to anyone else. Now, Peter does something really interesting here. He tells us who we're to be humble towards. He said, first of all, be humble Toward others. Look with me again in verse 5. He said, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, I want you to be humble toward others. I want you to be humble toward others. And he says here, I want you to clothe yourselves with humility. In other words, I want you to, to wrap around you or to put on you this idea and this mindset that you're inferior to others, that you are under others, that you are not superior to them, that you are to make yourself low and to make yourself less than. I want you to put that on. I want you to tie it around your neck, around your waist. I mean, I want you to clothe yourselves with humility. Now, why would Peter tell them that? He would tell he tells them that because humility doesn't come natural for us. All of us at some level have a bent toward pride. We have a bent toward arrogance or we have a bent toward selfishness. Peter knew that. He says, listen, if we're going to be the exiles God's called us to be, we've got to be humble, but we've got to be humble toward one another. Because we all have a bent toward arrogance and pride and selfishness, so you have to clothe yourselves with humility. 
You have to put it on because it doesn't come natural for you. Now, some of you go, yeah, it does come natural for me. Well, that's called false humility, and it's wrong, right? You know it doesn't come natural. We all have that bent toward arrogance and selfishness. He says, I want you to put it on. See, this kind of humility is having an attitude of putting others first. See, when we truly think of ourselves less than, or lower than others, or inferior to others, or under others, rather than being superior to them, this attitude is, drives this notion and this philosophy that we put others first. That means putting their desires first, putting their needs first. That when we look at others around us, we put what they need and what they desire and what, they, what, they, what they've got to have in their life, we put that first in our lives rather than our own selfish needs. In fact, Paul says it best in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interest, but also the interest of others. And so Paul simplifies it. He says, listen, don't, look, don't, don't be conceited at all. Think of others as more significant than you. That's the humility that Peter's telling us to put on, where we view others as more significant than ourselves, which means we put their needs, their interests, and their desires first. Now, what does humility do for us? This humility, first and foremost, which is the most important, it makes us more like Jesus. If you were to read a little further down in Philippians chapter 2, it would be that beautiful passage where it says that God, that, that God knew that equality with man was not something to be grasped, so he sent his son, and his son humbled himself. Jesus came and he humbled himself. He made himself low. He made himself under and inferior to others. The king of glory humbled himself. And so when we put on this kind of humility, it makes us more like Christ. But this kind of humility also protects us from becoming prideful. See, proud people put themselves first, right? Proud people don't trust God, they just trust themselves because they think they have the right way. Proud people seek to bring glory to themselves, not to God. And so humble people are like that. Humble people seek to put others first. Humble people trust God because they know their ways are not the right ways. Humble people seek to bring glory to God, not themselves. So this humility that, that Peter says the word to put on toward others is crucial. In fact, I love what Peter says here. He offers this kind of, this kind of warning. He said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Meaning this, if you choose to go down this path of pride, if you choose to live a life that's all about you, self-absorbed, you don't trust God, you want glory for yourself, just know this, God opposes the proud. In other words, you're running straight head on to God as your enemy. If you choose to go the route of pride and you choose to go the route of arrogance, you are going to become an enemy of God. God is going to oppose you, call you out, discipline, and deal with you. Not about you, but I don't want to be on that end of it, do you? But he says this, but God gives grace to the humble. See, if we choose humility, if we choose to clothe ourselves with this humility, where we think of others more significant than ourselves, he says he will give us grace, meaning he will show us favor in our lives. 
So Peter says we've got to humble ourselves, and we have to humble ourselves toward others. But he also says that we have to humble ourselves before God. Look what he says here in verse 6 and 7. He says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He says, I want you to humble yourselves before God. And did you notice what he said there? Humble yourselves under, there's that word again, under the mighty hand of God. Now I love this because Peter in both of these passages are just talking about being humble. But when it comes to other people, our humility is to view those people as more significant than ourselves. It's to put their needs, their interests, and their desires ahead of ours. But in this case, when he talks about humility, he says, I want you to yield to the leadership and the lordship of Christ. In other words, hey, listen, when, when we yield to other people, or we're humble to other people, we are putting their needs first. But when it comes to humbling ourselves before God, it's about yielding our lives to his lordship and to his leadership. I love what he says there, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, what is that implication there? He says, I want you to yield yourself under the creator of the universe. I want you to yield yourself under the one who's all-powerful, who's all-knowing, and who's sovereign. I want you to yield your will. I want you to yield your way. And I want you to yield the rule of your life to him. Surrender it all to him. So to be humble toward others is about putting them first. But being humble toward God and before God is about yielding my will, my way, and control of my life and yielding it and giving it to Him. And living a life of submission to Him. You know, I remember many years ago, uh, I was going to fly to Romania on a mission trip. And this is this is like back in the late 90s. And... Um, and I remember that my oldest son, James, he was, and I think Sonia was pregnant with Daniel, but James was about two years old. And, and James was one of those kind of kids. He had a lot of energy. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot, lot of energy. And so he would like run everywhere. He just like, he was like take off and just go. And he was the kind of kid you could sit down and say, hey, James, we don't want to run in here. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to trip people up. So, so please don't run. Stay right here with mom and dad. Can you do that? And he would say, yes, daddy. And then as soon as daddy came out of his mouth, he would turn and he would just take off and he would run. I mean, he was just gone. And so we knew in the airport that could be bad. Now, back in the 90s, if you remember, you could actually see your family all the way to the terminal. You could go and watch them get on the plane. And James was so chaotic and he was, and he was just like running around all the time. As Sonia was pregnant with Daniel, we knew that this was going to be a bad scenario. So Sonia went out to, I guess it was Babies R Us or whatever it was, and she bought... And it was very humane, don't think it wasn't, very humane, a leash for toddlers. And we put this leash on James, and what were we trying to do with the leash? We were trying to get him to yield his will, his way, and his rule to his mama. Now, James, it didn't work so well on him, because James knew that he had a little bit of room to go, and so he would run, and when the leash hung out, he would just jump. And then he would just be caught in the air, kind of like Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, you know? And so that's what he would do. So it didn't work for him. And we were just trying to say, listen, you've got to yield to our will, not your will. Our way, not your way. Well, for James, it didn't work. But what Peter is saying is, if we're going to yield, if we're going to humble ourselves before God, we have to yield ourselves. We have to surrender our will, our way, even if we like our way, and the control of our life 
to Him. And he says one way we can do that is by casting all our anxieties on Him. One way that we can yield our will and our way is by taking all the burdens, all the anxieties, all the hurts, all the things that are weighing us down, and we were to cast our anxieties on Him, handing over all those things to Him. See, when we hand over all our anxieties and our burdens and our cares and our worries to the Lord, when we hand all those things over, it shows our unbelievable, humble dependence on Him. See, when I hand all those things over, I'm saying, God, I desperately need you. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I can't handle this. I don't have the right wisdom. I don't have the right answers. I don't have the right direction. I desperately need you. And one way we can yield our will and yield our way and yield the rule of our life over to him is by casting all those burdens over to him. It shows our unbelievable, humble dependence on him. It also acknowledges that we know that he's the one that cares for us. The creator of the universe, that sovereign God, who's in charge of all things, is mindful and cares for us. So Peter says, you need to humble yourselves toward others, but you need to humble yourselves before God. And if we yield our will and our way and the rule of our life to the Lord, he says he will exalt us, meaning that one day when we see him face to face, we will experience reward for living a life of surrender and obedience to him. So first thing Peter says is you've got to be humble. The second thing he says is we've got to be alert. If we're going to live as the exiles God has called us to be, we have to be alert. Look at me in verse 8. He says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you notice where he says be sober-minded and be watchful? In other words, I need you to be alert. Don't get off, cut off guard. We, everybody say we, we have an adversary. The adversary of God is the devil, but he's also our adversary. He's not just the enemy of God. He is our enemy. And what Peter wants in the middle, as you live as exiles and you go through fiery trials and you go through suffering and you go through a difficult time, there's also a real enemy who's after you. There's a real enemy that wants to bring you down. Be alert. Eyes wide open. Don't get caught off guard. Don't get so wrapped up in a situation or circumstance that you take your eyes off the truth that we have an enemy and he's coming after us. And you notice what he says here. He, is, he prowls around or he roams around. And typically when you hear this passage preached, we, we kind of conjure up an imagery of, of the, the, the African safari. I've been on African safari before, and you look at these lions, and we drive by lions, and they just aimlessly roam around or prowl around. That's not the imagery that Peter was trying to communicate. In fact, to these first century Christians, remember, they are under the rule of Nero, a brutal leader, vicious leader. They understood the imagery of a lion that was prowling around or roaming around after them. See, the imagery they would have understood was the imagery tied to the Colosseum. See, what Nero would do is he would take Christians and he would throw them in the middle of the Colosseum. And then he would take lions that he'd been starving for days on end and he would release them into the Colosseum. And those lions would literally roam around and prowl around looking for their prey. And then they would attack. 
That's the imagery Peter's trying to create here. That we have an enemy that's roaming around. He's prowling around. And he's going to attack. He wants us to know that the devil is a predator looking for prey. And that's why he says he's seeking someone to devour. He's seeking someone to destroy. He's seeking someone to come after. Now, you and I, when we talk about the devil destroying us, listen, we, here's what we all know. We know that the devil cannot take our salvation away. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Amen? I know you believe that. He cannot take that away. Also, the devil cannot take our life away. The devil can only do to us what God the Father has allowed him to do to us. He can't take those things away from us. He just can't. He doesn't have that kind of authority. He doesn't have that kind of power. He can't do it. But yet Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, the thief, referring to the devil, the thief comes to steal, what? Kill and destroy. What does he want to steal from us? He wants to steal our joy. He wants to, he wants to kill our testimony. And he wants to destroy our faith. See, we have a real enemy that really is coming after us. And he wants to steal from us, kill us, and destroy us. He wants to render us ineffective for the gospel. If he can steal our joy, if he can kill our testimony, and destroy our faith, he has rendered us ineffective. And that's what he wants to do. Now, how does he do it? Well, he does it this way. He does it through temptation, and he does it through deception. He comes at us, and he tempts us with the pleasures of this world. He comes at us and he deceives us like he tried to deceive Eve and, and tell us that what God said is not really true and, and you know that nobody's going to know and it's going to be okay. And the next thing you know, we bite and we take it and we fall into sin. He says, listen, church, be alert. There's a real predator out there called the devil and he's coming. He's a predator, and he's prowling, and he's roaming around, and he's looking for someone to devour. He's looking for someone that he can steal their joy, kill their testimony, and destroy their faith. He's looking for someone he can come alongside them and render them ineffective. He's looking for someone that's going to be quickly given into temptation or believe his deception. Be alert. The third thing he says these early Christians is to be firm. To be firm. Look at me in verse 9. He continues his conversation about the enemy, the devil, and he says this, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He says, I want you to be firm. In other words, I want you to be re resolute, and I want you to resist the enemy. When the enemy comes against you, when he comes after you, when he tempts you, when he tries to deceive you, I want you to resist the enemy. I want you to resist him. Now, part of resisting the enemy, the word resist just means to stand against. That's what it means. Just to stand against them. To take a stand. In fact, how do we do that? You know, the old, when we think about standing against the enemy, when we think about standing against the devil, the truth of the matter is this. When we think about standing against him, is that we should probably have the soundtrack of Tom Petty playing in the background of our minds. You know what soundtrack I'm talking about, right? The one that says, I'm going to stand my ground, and I won't back what? Down. That's the soundtrack we should have in our lives. That when the enemy comes against us, that we are not going to back down. Now, the only way that we can do this, the only way we can stand against the enemy, is if we are, as Peter says, firm in our faith. If we are rooted in our trust 
of our Heavenly Father if we are rooted in believing and trusting in what He's doing in and through us. Why? Because the Bible says that greater is He that is in us than He that is what? In the world. And the only way we're going to be able to stand against the enemy and to resist him is if we are firm in our faith. Now, let me just say this to you. The only way to be firm in our faith is to be rooted in this. To be rooted in the Word of God. In fact, we don't have time to talk a lot about it, but in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul begins to address the spiritual warfare that we go through. He talks about the schemes of the devil. And then he talks about the armor of God and things that we need to put on to protect ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. But there's one piece of this armor that's a piece of offense, not defense. You remember what the piece is? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The only way that we are going to stand firm in our faith is if we are rooted in biblical truth. Why? Because when we are rooted in biblical truth and what the psalmist said is true for us, that His Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That when we are rooted in His Word, we see the enemy's lies for what they are. Lies. We see the enemy's deception for what it is. Deception. And he says, I want you to be firm. When that enemy attacks, you have to resist him. Stand against him. Don't cower. Don't back down. But stand your ground. And the only way you're going to do it is by being firm in your faith and your trust in God. And the only way you're going to be firm in your faith is by being rooted in God's word. Be firm. And he says, oh, by the way, when you're going through this and you feel like you're on an island all by yourself, there's everybody else in the brotherhood. All the other people in the brotherhood are going through the same stuff. They're being tempted too. They're being challenged too. They're being attacked just like you are. So when you feel like you're going through this alone, just know there's others who are going through it as well. You're not alone. Then the last thing he challenges them with, he says, be humble, be alert, be firm. And last of all, he says, be confident. Be confident. Now, if you've tracked with us through 1 Peter, this is a tough one. Because we've talked about how to live as exiles, how to navigate the suffering as exiles. We've talked about all that stuff. But in times of uncertainty, one of the things that typically escapes us is confidence. When uncertainty comes, what usually comes with it is despair, doubt, and discouragement. But I believe more than anything, what Peter is wrapping this book up, what he's telling these early Christians is, you, in the face of all these trials, in the face of all this suffering, in the face of the attacks of the enemy, be confident. Look what he says here in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the reason we can be confident is because the one who has called us is the one who will empower us to endure. Maybe you need to write that down. The reason we can be confident is because the one who has called us is the one who will empower us to endure. So the suffering we're going through, it's just temporary. And the one who's called us is going to give us the empower us to endure that suffering. The attacks of the enemy, it's just temporary. And the one who loves us and has called us and has saved us and has rescued us, he's going to empower us to endure those temptations, to endure that deception, to endure the attacks of the enemy. And you say, well, how, how in the world is Jesus going to empower us? Well, he tells us there. He's going to restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. 
Let's look at those just real quickly. What does it mean to restore us? It means to mend that which is broken. So when we go through trials or we go through suffering or we go through the attack of the enemy, isn't there some moments in our lives where we kind of take some damage? We take some blows spiritually, maybe emotionally we take some blows and maybe we feel broken or we've been hurt or some things have kind of tore us down. Well, what God does, what Jesus does in the midst of all that, in the face of all that, the reason we can be confident and that he's going to rescue us and that he's going to empower us is because he says, here, I'm going to restore you. In the face of all of this, don't lose your confidence in me. I'm still on your team. I'm still for you, not against you. And what I'm going to do for you in the face of all I'm going to restore you. In other words, I'm going to mend that which is broken. Now, the interesting thing is my father-in-law loves to watch car shows. That's not really my thing. But when we go visit them in Tennessee, we're always watching car shows. And the last time we were there, there was this one show. I can't remember the name of it, but I got really intrigued with it. Because they were finding these cars that were, like, totally destroyed. I mean, they broken is not even the right word for this. I mean, they were, like like tore down, broke, and you're, you weren't even sure sometimes what the car was. And these mechanics would come alongside, and they would fix what was broken, but they didn't just fix what was broken to restore it. They also made it as if it was new and ready to take the road again. So from beginning to the end, this thing that was just a piece of junk now has become something that's roadworthy to ride in that's beautiful. That's what it means that God's going to restore us. Not only will he mend what's broken in us spiritually and emotionally, but he will equip us and make us ready for the battles ahead. Because we may go through a battle now, we come out of a battle, but they're still going to come. They're going to come down the pike. And to restore us means I'm going to mend which is broken, but I'm also going to equip you and prepare you for what lies ahead. So I'm going to restore you. He also says that he's going to confirm us. That word confirm just means he's going to make us stable. He's going to make us able to stand. There's times when we go through things in life that we feel knocked down, beaten down, and we don't feel like emotionally or spiritually we can take a stand. He says, but I'm going to confirm you. I'm going to be right there with you, and I'm going to make you stable. I'm going to give you the ability to stand when you should be able to stand. I'm going to confirm you. Then he says, I'm going to strengthen you. In other words, I'm going to give you the ability to meet the demands of your life. Have you ever had something happen in life that was so traumatic that you didn't think you had the strength to make it to the next day? That you didn't have the strength to make it through the demands that life has for you? You probably have. In fact, as I think about this, there's a, there's a story of a, of a family about five years ago, one of the amazing families in our church, and they had a son, he's, I won't tell his name, but his son, he was, a, he was an amazing, godly young man, and and he grew up in my student ministry, and then he became part of the church. He joined the, he, as we planned the church, he was a part of that. And he even worked his way to where he was a small group leader. And he was actually Daniel's small group leader. Just a great guy. And one day on his way to nursing school, about an hour away, he was hit head on and died on impact. And I'm just telling you, if there was, if, if there was a, a, a terrible moment in my ministry where my heart sank and I felt grief like never before, it was that moment. In 20 some odd years of ministry, that was a moment that I will never forget in my life. It really had an impact on me. And you can talk about the sorrow and the grief we went through, but the thing that I'm reminded of is the family, the surviving family. I mean, did they grieve? Yes, they grieved. Did they hurt? You better believe it. Their 20-year-old son was gone. Life ahead of him is gone. But I'll never forget one Sunday morning, the mom, she pinned a letter and she wanted to read it to the church. 
And so we let her stand up there and she read this letter. And I'm just telling you, if you could hear the letter, it would make the hair on your neck just stand up. It was the most beautifully written letter I've ever seen, heard in my life. And basically the letter portrayed this. This depth of her sorrow, but the strength that her God had given her. And as I looked at her life and her, and her husband's life, Steve, as I looked at their lives, it was blown away to me that they had gone through such a difficult, tragic moment in their life, but it was the strength of the Lord that got them through it. That's what Peter's talking about. When you're going through it, one of the ways God empowers us by strengthening us. And then he says to establish us. One of the ways he empowers us to establish us, that just means to root us, to take us back to the very thing that motivates how we live our lives. You know, sometimes it's really easy to lose our way, isn't it? It's so easy to get caught up in the circumstances, the uncertainty, the suffering, the trials, that we forget who we're living for and why we're living. And to establish us means he roots us by reminding us of our foundation. What is our foundation? As a believer, what is our foundation? It's Christ crucified, right? That Jesus loved us so much that he died on the cross, spent three days in the grave, and on Easter Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. He says, listen, when all the chaos is going on, and the enemy is attacking you, and suffering's coming your way, and trials have come your way, I'm going to make sure that God's going to, he's going to empower you by establishing you, by reminding you of what keeps you rooted. And that's the love of God. That he sent his only son to die on the cross for you, for me, for us. He says, listen, we can be confident because the one who's called us is the one who's going to empower us to endure. So Peter tells these early Christians, if we're going to be the exiles, we've got to be. We've got to be humble. We need to be alert. We've got to be firm. And we can be confident in the power of our God. Now, I know when you go through difficult times. I know when you go through suffering. I know when you go through attacks of the enemy. It's not easy. It's tough. But if we're going to be the kind of exiles that God wants us to be, we have to be about these things too. So my question is just simple this morning. Which one of these do you need to commit to? Is it humility toward others or before God? Is it alertness? Is it being firm? Is it being confident? Which one do you need to commit to? Not your, not your spouse, not your kids, not your neighbor. Which one do you need to commit to if you're going to be the exile that God wants you to be. So for those of you that are with us in this moment, for those that are watching online and you're believers, I just ask you to pray this prayer. God, would you open my eyes to which one of these I need greater in my life that I might be the exile that you've called me to be. And once you ask him to do that for you, would you be faithful to respond and commit the way he asks of you. And then for those of you that are, that are with us, that are maybe, that are maybe uh, um, don't know Christ, you're watching online, you don't know Christ, and you're struggling, I just want to remind you, this whole book, this entire book, was about bringing hope to a group of people who were persecuted. And the hope was this, and that there's one day that the Savior of the world, Jesus, is going to split the skies open, and he's, going to, and he's going to bring all those who love him and care about him to himself, and they're going to experience eternal reward. And those who don't know him will not experience eternal reward, but eternal punishment. And the question is, do you know which one of those you will be? See, this book was provided for these early Christians as a means of encouragement 
that while you're going through difficult times here, there's a home that awaits you that's going to be glorious. So take heart. Be encouraged. And the only way that you can have confidence that you're going to spend eternity with Him is if you've surrendered your life to Christ. And if you've never done it, it is as simple as just admitting that you know that you sin. By saying, Lord, I believe with all my heart that Jesus loves me and that He died for me and that all I have to do is surrender my life to You. And I confess that Jesus is my Lord. That I want Him to come into my life to forgive me my sins and to save my soul. And if you will do that, you can, you can pray that prayer and when you're done, you can have the confidence of knowing that when you leave this world, you will spend forever with Him in eternity. My prayer for all of us is just this is that we would respond to this word as the Lord leads us. Let's pray. God, I love you. I thank you for this moment that we've had together. I thank you for First Peter. I have learned so much about how you want me to live in this world. I've learned so much. So God, I pray for us. I pray as we wrap up this book that for those of us that are believers, that we would be reminded as exiles, we've got to practice humility toward others, but before you. We've got to be alert there is a real enemy that's after us. We've got to be firm and be willing to take a stand. The only way we can take a stand is by being firm in our faith, our trust in you. And that we need to be confident. Confident not in our abilities, but that you are all powerful. And that you who called us and saved us and rescued us, you are the one that's going to give us the strength to endure whatever this world throws at us. God, my prayer for every single one of us that are believers is that we would make a commitment in this moment that we would be the exiles that you've called us to be in this world. And then, God, I pray for those who've, who struggle with whether they know they're going to spend eternity with, not, with you or not, that just a moment ago, maybe they made that prayer. Maybe they said that they admitted they believe in you and they confess Jesus Lord. God, I pray that you would just give an energy to their soul, letting them know that if they prayed that, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they can have confidence in knowing that when they leave this world, the first face they will see will be Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. For it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.